Hey guys, just a quick note before this podcast episode begins. We had Josh play some songs during the podcast that for legal reasons are better off left off of the audio version, but you can watch on YouTube. We have broken the songs out into their own playlist, or you can watch the whole interview. Thanks. What is the difference between being punk and being a punk? We are here to talk some punk rock, some music comics. Punk culture, DIY shit, anything we want to talk about. That's that's what fascinates Give me everything. Absolutely everything. I find that, that music and comics have always been intertwined. Muxbound. Chicks okay. dig it. Don't worry. <laughs> Hey, welcome to Muck Spout, uh, episode eight. Got Ben and John with me. Howdy, guys. Yeah. Um, we are brought to you by the Stupid Rad Merch Company. Woo! They specialize yeah. in shirts, stickers, buttons, and enamel pins, patches, slip mats. I've used them for a few things, and they are pretty great. And um, that's pretty and fun. They have a fantastic band roster, too, from everything I've seen. Bad Cop, Bad Cop, Bomb Pops, a great, bunch of great bands. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, uh, they, they're, they're the real deal, but I also want to congratulate us on selling out this quickly. Um, we already have a capitalist sponsor. This is fantastic. <laughs> I don't have to wear my tube top on the street corner anymore. It's okay. We can fund right. this, but... I shut down my only fans last night. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tonight we're going to talk about longevity and evolution as an artist, uh, amongst other things with our guest, uh, Josh Cater from Smoking Popes. I'm going to bring him on right now. And uh, there he is, the legendary Hello. Cater. Hi there. Hey, man. Hey, what's up, fellas? How do you feel about the word legendary, Josh? Is that, you like it? Um, legend. <laughs> it's a very relative term. <laughs> you know, it just means that uh, somewhere someone is talking about you, <laughs> you that's go. true are yeah. they saying good things or bad things i don't know legendary is very similar to like notorious <laughs> that's true well we'll find out in the comment section <laughs> <laughs> fair enough <laughs> um uh, i i have a, a question uh, as someone who has had uh, a fair amount of success uh, as a, uh, can we say a front man? You know, sure. you're kind of front facing. You, you, uh, I would say, you know, I, I, I'm a drummer, right? So like, I'm not the guy that absorbs the majority of the, uh, the interest in a band. Um, what's the, what's the value of anonymity? Considering that it, it must be difficult to do that and be like, the face of uh, a music project well fortunately uh the level of success that the popes have achieved uh only really applies to certain situations like we're not we're not a household name so i, I don't walk down the street and get recognized i'll only have people really interested in me at 
either one of our shows or if I go to a show of a band that's sort of in our genre, um, then I'll get re recognized. But um, it doesn't. And that's always nice. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's also we're not to the level where like there's people who are behaving truly strangely toward mm. me. Uh, there used to be a little more of that in the nineties when there was more of an immediate buzz about the band. Um, people got a little weird. Like if you're currently a hot item, um, people don't know what to do with themselves around you. But um, I think we've been yeah. around long enough where it's just like, Oh uh, yeah, it's that guy. <laughs> so what kind of thing happens when people get a little weird? Like I've always wondered, cause I've, I've been in bands that never really got a lot of um, public attention. Uh, you know, it's nice to get props after a show, but it's a different thing to have uh, people kind of like seeking you out in a crowd. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. Yeah. Where does um, the, where does the line get crossed where you're like, ah, I don't like this no more. <laughs> um, well, uh, it, it would usually take the form of like people, um, either people seeming really nervous when they, when they talk to you, mm. uh, which just makes it, uh, it just makes it hard to have a conversation with somebody. Yeah. Um, because we're just, it's like they're, they're nervous as if they're, you know, auditioning for something. <laughs> Or if they have something to lose by saying the wrong thing in this conversation. But usually if you're just talking to a person, nobody feels that way. We're just two people talking. Um, but sometimes uh, it'll take the form of, there's a term. I don't know if it's a term that like, mo you know, a lot of people use, but we heard it somewhere and we use it. The, the, there's a certain kind of fan that we call them punishers. <laughs> Is this a thing you've heard before? I have not. No. The idea being that somebody likes your band so much that they're going to punish you for it. And uh, yeah. you're, you know, you're out there, you know, maybe by your merch table and somebody just comes up to you and they get right in your face and they um, just start, um, really enthusiastically uh, giving you the life story of their, uh, their relationship with your music. And that, that's, there's a little, there's a, you can just see like the sort of, uh, there's a yearning in their eyes. You can tell that this person wants something from you and mm -hmm. they sort of like, focus their attention on you and they monopolize you and they just won't let you go. They just keep asking you questions. Yeah. And uh, especially if you get somebody with a few drinks in them, they, oh, then they yeah. lose all, they lose their filter and you'll be like, I'll be, you know, having a conversation with somebody and then someone else will come up and just step in between and start sort of shouting in my face about how awesome they think I am. I've seen <laughs> and, that when yeah. I've been talking to you at a show. <laughs> I've <Yeah. noticed> that. <laughs> Those people, and you're like, this person loves my band, but they're being really unpleasant right now. So we, we yeah. call them a punisher. It's a good and term. It'll even be like, you know, like if somebody goes out to the merch table and they come back to the back room and we'll be, I'll be like, 
how is it out there? A lot of punishers at the table tonight. <laughs> Don't go out there. <laughs> well, I uh, I have one thing to start by uh, punishing you with. <laughs> no, the, you're uh, not a punisher. We're way past that. Area. <laughs> I was uh, no time like the present. <laughs> I was thinking recently about how when I was ten years old, my dad would listen to like the Beatles, and the albums would be maybe like. 18, 20 years old. Realized the other day with my 10 year old that sometimes I'll listen to Get Fired. Yeah. And it's about to be 30 years old. Yeah. Like, I don't really have a question that goes along with that. Just kind of like a wow. (laughs) (laughs) How does it feel to be old? (laughs) I thought he was saying, how does it feel to be like the Beatles? (laughs) Yeah. 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 However you want. (laughs) There you go. but that's pretty well, amazing. I mean, time is really strange. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you put out a record and then you just go on with your life. And the next thing you know, it's 30 years old. You know, um, it does. It does seem strange to me. Um because that album is older than I was when we started the band and when, when I recorded the album. Um, but it also seems strange because like, I still feel like we as a band are like, um, I feel like we're in the middle of our, of our journey. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I, like I mentioned, time is a weird thing, but I, I, I don't know if you guys have this, but you sort of, as you go through life, depending on how old you are, like you, you sort of envision yourself. Obviously you don't know exactly when your life is going to end, but you sort of, if all goes well and nothing catastrophic happens, I'm going to be living to you know, be X number of years old. Um, and I've got like sort of, x number of really functional years ahead of me mm-hmm. and uh you know i'm th- i think that like when i was you know 20 i would have said that by the time i was 50 i'd be you know on the downward slope of things mm-hmm. um but now that i'm 50 and i i like you know, I follow Mick Jagger on social media and I, I see him like, like he'll post these videos of him, like working out to get ready for his upcoming shows and stuff. And I don't know if you've seen those, but just videos of him sort of like in his like home, it looks like a studio, like a, like a dance studio almost that he has. And he's just sort of doing his moves in there. And uh, just kind of running around in circles, doing little kicks and stuff and stretches. And he's like 79. Yeah. yeah. Well, 50 is in the 20, right? Well, he's like, I, he, he's a living example of the principle that as long as you keep moving and you, uh, you, 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 you stop you're doing things to actively destroy yourself and you, you sort of like do some basic maintenance on what, what you've got. Um, 
yeah. you know, you can you can be really active and and uh, be getting a lot out of life and putting a lot out there still like, you know, well into your seventies. So all that to, to sort of illustrate that I I feel like we're, we're still in the middle of our, of our story and we've got as much ahead of us as we do behind almost. On that note, um, when it comes to the popes, so you had the spoken popes, what, 91 to 98. Yeah. Then reunited in 2005 until now. You guys yep. have been around since you, you came back together almost twice as long as you were together originally now, isn't it? Am I doing that math about right? Um, yeah, I'm bad at math, but it feels right what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, when I think about that, that's wild to me, like that you guys have been around that much, that long again. Me too. I, time, I mean, I remember a time when there was no smoking popes and there might not be again. And now it's almost like you guys never left because that was so long ago. Right. But that was, I, I remember that period right after we got back together and, and, and we were like, you know, we were broken up for seven years and then we got back together and we did a tour uh, just encountering people at the shows who were like just overjoyed because they had been fans of ours for a few years and they thought they would never get to see us play. So it was like a dream come true kind of for them. That was really nice. Maybe we should break up again for seven years. And <laughs> sort of for the fans, right? <laughs> I recently had that with uh, when Jawbreaker came back. Like I had never seen Jawbreaker originally. So that right. was exciting. And man, they were broken up for, I think, like yeah, they were broken five up like, years. Yeah, like... People had kids that could drink now. Like they've been broken up so long. <laughs> yeah. When you guys split up, did it feel permanent, or did it feel like a like a just like a, a kind of a brief? We need to t- uh, take stock and kind of like separate for a moment. No, it felt permanent. I was leaving the band. Um, I thought permanently just because of like uh, a kind of spiritual upheaval that was happening in my life and um Mm -hmm. you know i i I was i was responding to all of that by just sort of renouncing rock and roll altogether and like devoting myself to my faith Mm. uh which i'm glad i did it was a really important time for me and the kind of like roots that i that I established in my, in my faith and in my relationship with God are things that have really served me well in my life since then. And so I'm glad I focused on those things without distraction. But after a few years, I realized that it, it wasn't mutually exclusive. I, I don't, it's, it's not like I have to pick either God or the smoking pokes. They, they can right. coexist with each other in my life. Yeah. So. So since we're talking about this period, um, when I put out like a call, like if anybody's got any questions for Josh Caterer, let me know. And I want to say maybe, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't get a ton of questions, but I want to say like maybe 90% of them were related to Duval. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, um, that was fun. Cause, cause I always liked Duval, obviously. Um, and the top one was, is 
Duval still potentially a thing? Um, well, Duval never officially broke up. We just sort of stopped. Yeah. So uh, there's always the chance that something's going to happen. Um, you know, Eli and I have occasionally discussed, you know, should we do like, should we do a kind of a Duval reunion show where we maybe play volume and density in its entirety? Um, and I've brought this up, I don't know, a couple months ago, I talked to Rob Kellenberger on the phone and we kicked this idea around and it's something that he's open to as well. But, you know, it would take a fair amount of rehearsal for us to get back in the saddle with that because we haven't played those songs in like 20 years or something. So um, will we actually do it? I don't know. I'm not ruling it out, but it's not on the front burner. I guess also, is there any chance that some of that stuff might bleed more into your Josh Cater trio stuff that you're doing now? Um, there's some great, great songs out there that are just kind of, sitting <laughs> oh thanks i it, it really warms my heart when people express uh a desire to hear more duval because i just sort of figured that that project fell by the wayside but yeah i guess i, I guess, guess people people are still interested in that i guess for some background for people that don't know anything about duval it was josh's christian band after um the spoken pubs uh probably what four years after Pope's split. Um, yeah. I think about three years after the Pope's broke up, I got that band together. Yeah. And um, uh, the idea was to, to musically pick up where the Pope's left off. So stylistically it's similar to the Pope's, but yeah, to call it a Christian band just means that I was uh, the lyrics sort of have, you know, Christian themes and like some biblical references and themes. You know, it's not like beat you over the head with uh, mm. with the Christian message or anything, but. Yeah, it's not gospel. It's yeah. not gospel music. It's not like praise and worship music. It's just sort of, it's really pop punk music written by a, a person with some definite spiritual interests that you can that you can pick up on in the music yeah i was doing a sampling earlier today of the duval stuff and i actually found and it might have just been the tracks that i picked up but it felt like some of the guitar work and stuff was a little heavier almost in some spots and i was like very happily surprised that it it didn't sound like any other kind of yeah like faith oriented music that I'd heard of that like you said it's not beating you over the head and the guitar was great and it was just very wow. driving and it was a lot of fun so I give you kudos for yeah oh, making thanks. it so much fun so yeah well I appreciate that and the fact that it didn't fit into any boxes of other Christian music at the time just meant that it was almost impossible for us to get a record deal mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah because certainly nobody in christian music knew what to do with duval at the time yeah, yeah. but you know also a lot of uh non-christian labels were also like 
So what, what, what are you doing? But so we ended up putting it out on uh, Asian man. Mike Park has always been a friend and a big supporter of, he's just a supporter of music and the music scene. And he's definitely had a love for Chicago. Yeah. Like, he's put out a lot of great Chicago albums with Tuesday. He really has. And he's still, and... he's still doing it out of his mom's garage. Yeah. Pretty amazing. That's amazing. First of all, that was incredible. Second of all, that that tripped me out a little bit. My uh, father is from Racine, Wisconsin. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he was a Lutheran pastor. <laughs> okay. It's weird. That... But you didn't, you didn't live in Racine at all when you were a kid? No. Uh, I grew up in Canada, so uh, my, my father um, met my mom here in Ontario, and uh, they got married and didn't last long. But uh, yeah, he moved back to Wisconsin. But uh, it was just strange that the first song you would pick is like the one town that I actually yeah. know from my childhood. <laughs> it was a little, little trippy. Coincidence? It was a beautiful song. I think not. What's that? Coincidence? I think not. I agree. Awesome. So how long have you been uh, like a musician? Oh, man, uh, probably like forty three years. Wow. Because I, I, I started playing piano even before I was before I was 10. I think I started taking lessons when I was six or seven years old. Wow. So how did, see there, for me as a, as a drummer, there was a moment when I knew that this is the thing I was going to do. Yeah. How old were you when you had that moment or did you have that moment? Oh yeah. I was probably like 11 (laughs) when I realized that. Cause that's yeah. around Did you the ever... time that I, that's around the time I started playing guitar and uh, here, I'm going to talk to you and let my dog out at the same time. <laughs> cool. And I just knew even at that age that uh, like music was something that I was so passionate about. I was like almost obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. Are your parents musicians, Josh? Uh, my dad played the guitar a little bit. He was not a professional musician. Uh, and he wasn't that great at it. He was just competent enough to sort of play, uh, like sit around the house and play. Um, he, had a, he, had a, he had like a nylon string acoustic that he would get out sometimes. And I remember like probably some of my earliest memories in life are of my brothers and I standing around in the living room in a sort of semicircle around my dad when he was trying to play guitar and he had these books of uh, like sheet music, uh, just of what were at the time, like contemporary songs. Like one of them I remember was uh, Night Moves by Bob Seger. I love that song. Yeah, it's a really good song. But like, you know, my dad like playing and singing Night Moves and we're just kind of standing around joining in. 
night moves. <laughs> and of course, it would be years before I would grasp what that song actually was about. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, with points. Would have been awkward if he explained it to you right then and there, though, right? <laughs> like. <laughs> With points all her own, sitting way up high. I had no idea what that was about. <laughs> uh, so, Josh, as I was thinking about um, about speaking to you, I was thinking about some of the things that I heard, like as an early Pope's fan, that I've never really heard addressed. Um, they're not really awkward things. I'm not putting you on the spot with anything here. But, okay. Yeah. So I grew up <laughs> around like the Homewood area um, and Park Forest and all that. Um, there was a venue in Homewood called uh, Off the Alley. Yeah. That you guys played. There was always the story that ran around Homewood that Green Day was at the record store at Off the Alley and saw you guys play. And that that helped launch you guys to Capitol Records. Oh. There, doesn't sound like you knew anything about that. <laughs> I did not know about that. That sounds like it might be apocryphal. Yeah. I, I mean, we did. I know that Green Day did discover us after um, our first album came out. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, when they came through Chicago on the tour for Dookie, they asked us to open for them. Um, wow. When right, right when they became like the biggest band in the world, and so right. our connection with them was a very big part of launching our career because it drew a lot of interest from like major labels at the time. But I, we did not meet them at Off the Alley in Homewood. If they were there, I had no knowledge of it. Yeah. And you'd think that they would come up and introduce right. them. Right, they're Green Day. They yeah. could do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm inclined to think that that's not how it happened. I yeah. think that they just found out about our band through, like, Maximum Rock and Roll magazine or whatever. Whatever punk uh, outlet they were getting their information from at the time. You know, they sort of, at, at least at that time probably had their finger on the pulse of things and they would they were picking up some records that were like flying under the radar which ours was one and so plus they had their own record label from the get-go pretty much haven't they look out isn't that theirs they they did that's kind of that's the thing that that really um connected us with them in a way that started a uh what you might call a bidding war at the time because their managers contacted us and asked if we wanted to be the first band on this label that they were starting up. And uh, we, we didn't end up doing that. We, we ended up going with Capitol records instead, but it all got what was started. The calculus there? Was there a reason why you chose them uh, over um, the other? Um, you know, we we met with a handful of different labels at the time. Uh, Warner Brothers, Atlantic. Um, so there was already a buzz about you guys at this point. Um, 
it, well, it was the, the first people we ever talked to were the Green Day managers. But then after that, once I got a call, it was like Green Day's manager called me up at home. They somehow got my home number <laughs> and called me up and uh, asked, you know, if we were interested in doing that. And I was like, well, we're going to have to think about it. And I put down the phone, told my brothers that that had happened. And then we immediately called Joe Shanahan at the Metro who owns a Metro in Chicago because, you know, we had played there and I knew that he, he was friends with, you know, bands like uh, Smashing Pumpkins and that he had helped certain bands, uh, you know, get their careers going, but he had never managed anybody before, but he just was sort of like a good guy to know. And he had told us, if you ever need anything, let me know. So we called him and we told him that I had gotten this phone call and, you know, we, he quickly, we, we, we asked him to manage us and to try to navigate um, whatever other interest we could get from other labels. So he, he set it up to where we were meeting with other labels and stuff. And then, out of all the ones that we talked to, uh, we went with Capital because it was the smallest of the major labels at the time. Like we felt like, you know, on Warner Brothers or Atlantic, there was more of a chance of us getting lost in the shuffle. But uh, Capital was... Uh, didn't have as many bands on their roster at the time. They had Radiohead had just put out, I think, the Bends, yeah, and uh, and a couple other bands. But also, I can't deny that part of it is that, that when we went and took a tour of the of the Capitol building, we just sort of fell in love with it, like. Um, To, you know, to be to be in that magical building and to see like there's a there's a recording studio kind of in the on the ground floor of it, which is where Sinatra used to do some of his like big band recordings. And they showed us that studio and I and Sinatra was uh, he was still alive at the time. He was like uh, I remember he was about to celebrate his 80th birthday and they were going to do a special. I remember like watching it. Sinatra 80th thing. And so I was like, oh my goodness, we can be on, we could be label mates with Frank Sinatra. <laughs> like yeah. we just sort of couldn't pass that up. <laughs> yeah. We were label mates with Frank Sinatra. <laughs> so it was Sinatra that did it for you then. That's amazing. Sort of, yeah. Very cool. <laughs> And then the other thing that uh, popped up was, I think I remember hearing you say this, but uh, if it's not true, then I didn't. Um, <laughs> the, when you guys, so you guys did a cover of Pure Imagination on Destination Failure, yeah, um, which is quite beloved um, still to this day by fans. Um, and I seem to remember you, when that was being made, I remember you saying that you were actually pulling for the Golden Ticket song. Um, we, we wanted to do a song from that movie, 
And because uh, uh, so many of the songs in that movie are awesome. And and I remember we did uh, we did try to put together an arrangement of Golden Ticket. And uh, I think we might have tried to do one for Cheer Up Charlie. Because that's also a wonderful, uh, beautiful song. But just none of those other ones clicked the way that Pure Imagination did. Did being on Capitol, is that what gave you guys the access to record a song like that? Or is it, I don't know anything about legalities of cover songs on your albums, but. No, you can, you can cover somebody's song as long as you, uh, you don't have to get permission from them. Hmm. Um, you just you have can to record credit them, right? You just have to credit them and then you have to, uh, you have to be paying the songwriters whatever the the going rate for you know for songwriting royalties are okay which is something that like ASCAP or BMI does all that um i think the the only time you have to get permission is if you're going to use somebody's song like in a tv show or a movie okay or some other uh format then you can't do that without their permission, but just to record a cover of it, you can just go ahead and do it. Cool. But I, I found out uh, years later. Um, I'm thinking this. This was when the album uh, "Stay Down" came out. So what was that? Like 2008 or 2009? Um, we played. We played a show in Los Angeles and Morrissey came to the show and we had done a tour with him where we opened for, for him for several weeks. But on that tour, we, we really didn't talk to him very much because he was just kind of uh, being like reclusive. Like he, w- he wouldn't come into the building very much. Like, you know, he would just come in like five minutes before his set time he would play and then leave so but then and that was like in i can don't remember what year that was but a few years after that he came to see us play in los angeles and came backstage and sat down and we ended up having a longer conversation with him than we'd ever had before and one of the things that he told us was that he had had the opportunity uh, to meet Anthony Newley, who was the co-writer of Pure Imagination. He co-wrote all the songs for that soundtrack. And when he, uh, you know, wh- he knew in advance that he was going to be, it was sort of an arranged meeting between him and Anthony Newley. And so he brought to that meeting his uh, vinyl copy of Pure Imagination of our version of Pure Imagination, oh. and he gave it to wow. Anthony. Wow. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. And he said then he he had a follow-up phone conversation with Anthony Newley, you know, a couple months later. Shortly before Mr. Newley passed away. Oh. And uh, asked him what he thought of the Smoky Pope's version of Pure Imagination. And apparently... Mr. Newley said he thought it was hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah. Which Morrissey wasn't quite sure 
if we were going to take that as an insult or be upset about knowing that, yeah. <laughs> that Anthony really was like amused by our version of it. But I am absolutely delighted that that happened and that I found out about it. Oh, yeah. This, I think it's awesome on a lot of levels. I'm really grateful to have that connection with him. I would have been upset if he was like, if he said, I think it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but for him to say it's hilarious, I do actually take that as a compliment. That's great. For sure. I was going to prompt you to do another song, but since you mentioned Stay Down, uh, ah. it's kind of become a lost album. Like, I had a very short release on CD, and it's never hit vinyl. Yeah. Is there any chance of anything happening with that album again? Stay Down? Um, yeah. It was a good album. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I could see us reissuing that at some point. It was uh, The Corner? Was that, that was on there, right? The Corner is on yeah, there. You've one. got uh, If You Don't Care is on there. Yeah. Uh, Grab your heart and run is on there. You're, uh, I got to tell you, man, you're a fantastic singer, a fantastic lyricist. Thanks. Um, and I'm curious, like, how does the how does the songwriting process work for you? Like, does it start with words? Does it start with a riff, or is it like a collaborative thing where you work with other people? Um, I don't usually work with other people, and. I usually start with music. Um, I usually will kind of like, it, it usually happens one of two ways. I will, uh, I'll pick up a guitar and start messing around and I'll come up with like a chord pattern and, and sort of melody that I'm humming. Mm -hmm. And I'll put music together and then I'll fill in the lyrics later. Or I'll be listening to music, usually in the car. Um, oftentimes I'll be listening like to the, uh, the 40s channel on Sirius XM. And something about the song that I'm hearing kind of like gives me an idea for a melody or like a phrase, a little lyrical phrase. And so I'll like either start singing it along with what I'm listening to, or I'll turn that off for a second and start working on it in my head. It's, it's wild for the different the ways people work. I remember uh, Mike, yeah. Mike Fellomley, the drummer was telling, not that I needed to tell you who Mike Fellomley was, but, right, but for the <laughs> listening audience. Yeah. Well, I didn't know. <laughs> he was, uh, he was telling me before about Rivers Como's writing, um, the way he writes songs. And basically, the way I understand it is that Rivers Como has like a spreadsheet of clever little quick lines that he pulls together a song from. Like he just kind of comes up with as going. It's just wild to me that the variety of ways that people come up with. That's kind of like the Mad Libs way of writing a song. I like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> totally, dude. <laughs> Oh, well, sometimes when you're listening to Weezer, think about it. <laughs> I kind of wish they would do that live, right? Like, wouldn't that be awesome? You go to a show and they're like, okay, I need a noun and a verb and a place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's like, 
sort of a great idea for uh, improv rock. I'm into it, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can call the band Yes And. <laughs> <laughs> yes i love it oh man that's dude. a million dollar idea hell yeah dude head to toronto we'll uh, we'll figure it out okay <laughs> so i guess uh one of the questions i'd have is with such a long career uh from the beginning your very first smoking popes album that you wrote to what you're working on right now how is the lyrical content changed and what has changed about your process or anything? What has evolved during that time frame? Yeah. Um, the earlier, uh, you know, the earlier stuff was a little more rooted in um, an immediate attempt to 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 get girls <laughs> the root of all musicians <laughs> yeah, legit, at the beginning no, of the career yeah 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 so some of those some of those early ones were just written in order to impress uh women in general or in order to try to um get the attention of like certain young ladies um you know, there was there's a there was a certain urgency to like not having my romantic situation figured out yet. Um, and then I I found, of course, the stuff I was writing for Duval. I was mostly like thinking about uh, transcendent truths and and spiritual concepts. And then getting the Pope's back together and writing for the popes again um i feel like there's there's it's sort of split between you know some variation of of love songs um and more like kind of existential problems hmm. like i've had some uh some of the songs I've written are just sort of about, I don't know, even stuff that I'm working on now, probably because I uh, have spent some time recently just in my own study, uh, reading through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a heavy one. Uh, it's a pretty heavy one and it's very existential and it's all sort of about the, uh, apparent meaninglessness of life mm. and the, the, the attempt to sort of embrace the living of it and to find joy in that, even while acknowledging that it's fleeting and, uh, and the, the kind of melancholy that comes from that. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, I've, sort of work that into my writing these days because it's interesting to me <laughs> and if i and if i write some of the songs where i'm addressing like romantic themes i'm doing that more as you know I, like i've i've been married for like uh it's coming up on 25 years now 
Congrats. Congrats. And yeah, so um but I don't I don't think that it's necessarily an interesting songwriting exercise to just sort of use songs as a way of like working through you know every time my wife and I have an argument about like you know who's gonna do the dishes or whatever you know <laughs> so but so it's more I, I feel like my writing about those things is a little more kind of uh like bird's eye view thinking about those things conceptually I have noticed um over the last handful of years more so um just personally knowing you and then um just some of your music that you've been more involved in like politically thinking um and i noticed during COVID, i noticed um with you know the mask wearing and stuff you're a big proponent of that and um yeah. for some reason that was a political thing um and then just that's what i was i was gonna say like yeah. the fact <laughs> that it doesn't sound particularly political but yeah unfortunately um and yeah, but it's and even the, fact, okay. yeah the fact that i the, the fact that i like get vaccinated for for a disease and that that would be like a controversial thing to do and perceived as a political statement is sort of mind blowing in and of itself yeah because yeah. I, I used to get vaccinated for things like you know when i was going to school like you'd have to get yeah yeah i remember taking happy shots at school in my gym yeah it was not controversial at all to get vaccinated yeah. for things um so the fact that pe people were trying to make it a political thing was something that I just rejected out outright. Um, well, I could be wrong, but going back through your library, I don't know that anything was very political up until maybe Little Lump of Coal. Uh, yeah. Um, is there anything you could think of that was more politically? I wasn't. Honestly, like, I have the luxury of not being very interested in politics which maybe is a kind of a privileged way to go through life. <laughs> mm. But up until 2016, um, whoever was president, I, I mean, like I voted, but like, I didn't really pay attention to it. Like you, you remember like the president would only be in the news, like every once in a while, if he was doing something like, like, oh, the president's over in, in uh, China right now, like, uh, you know, doing something particularly out of the ordinary. But you would go for weeks. I would, anyway, without ever thinking about the president of the United States. Yeah, I've always felt like politicians and drummers are very similar in that if they're doing their job right, you don't really notice them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Even if you didn't necessarily agree with all the policies of the person who was in office, you at least had the basic assumption that they weren't going to like burn the house down. Yeah. Like marginally you know, competent was what you were aiming yeah, for. They were right? just going to sort of mind the store until yeah. until 2016. And then it was like wait a minute, uh, it seems like our, it seems like a lot of things we take for granted um, are actually at stake here because mm -hmm. the guy that was at the helm seemed like um, 
it was, I thought it was pretty clear that he was not actually looking out for the interest of the country or trying to preserve democracy, which ultimately with the things that we saw on January 6th, it, it, it became painfully clear that this guy was not a friend of democracy. He was very like willing to uh, overturn elections and the voice of the people in order to install himself in power. But like even leading up to that, like when I when, when he pulled America out of the Paris climate agreement, mm-hmm. that was something that uh, I found extremely upsetting. Um, so much for so me, it was it was the fire and fury statement with North Korea. I was like, that is not something you play with. Yeah. Yeah. There were things going on there that I, I was like, this is uh, this is not acceptable. <laughs> this is I can't yeah. I, I felt like I, I can't keep my head in the sand. Anybody who's who has even one eye open has mm-hmm. to be alarmed about what's going on right now. And I had never written specifically about political things, but um, my concern about the uh, the planet <laughs> inspired me to write a song in response to the uh, withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement. And then we released it as a single and made a point of saying that all of the profits from the digital single were going to go toward um, a, uh, a nonprofit organization that was like fighting for, uh, you know, working for, uh, you know, to try to fight climate change. And um, I don't know, I, it was, it was definitely new ground for us to be kind of like politically active, but I felt like we, we were forced into it by the times, you know? Right. I have a question on, on that. Um, my, now I've been political for a very long time. Um, if that, if that's an adjective you can use to, as a character trait, I don't know. Um, I've been politically, politically interested, I would say for a very long time. Um, and you know, I was always concerned about things in ways that most people, uh, seem to be, didn't seem to uh, see things as a priority. And in retrospect, a lot of times I was worried about things unnecessarily. Uh, but there has been a distinct shift in the way that not only politics are done, but the way that people perceive uh, the political realm and yeah. what is in it and what is not in it. Um, and I'm curious, uh, how do you, do you think that you became political or that politics sort of invaded your personal space? Um, I think that I, I became more aware of politics and in retrospect, I, I, I should have been more politically aware before that. Um, like, you know, I, I think that you had the right idea of like actually paying attention to politics. Um, I always felt like I was, it was boiling frogs, you know? Yeah. 
it just it it took it took uh, Trump to to sort of like frighten me into actually caring about politics or paying attention to it. And one thing that was, I mean, this is, I don't know, maybe this is a whole can of worms for me to open this up and I don't want to dig too far into it, but, <laughs> but up to that point, I had never thought about Christianity in political terms. For me, it was like mm. a purely, a purely personal and a purely like existential thing. Like I, I, I came to faith in Christ in order to address the uh, the human predicament of mortality, and and that that's the lens through which I saw Christianity, which I think, in truth, that's what Christianity ultimately is. But the thing that I was unaware of, because I I didn't go around talking to other Christians about politics, right? Um, it wasn't until 2016 that I realized that most of the other Christians around me were like diehard Republicans who bought into a entirely right-wing set of uh, worldviews and opinions about a variety of social issues, um, many of which I did not agree with. And it, it, it um, was sort of uh, dis disorienting to me yeah because <laughs> i was like i don't know how i feel like i'm in you know I, like i belong to a club where i like i inadvertently don't agree with a lot of the the the, the club rules <laughs> it's like you it's know? like you've been going to the same bar for like 20 yeah. years and then one day you go in and you're like Everybody's wearing swastikas. And they're like, yeah, we've always been wearing swastikas. You're like, hold on. Or, wait like, a second. or like, I, I feel like I've been, I've, I've, I think of it this way sometimes. Like, I'm sitting around in a movie theater watching It's a Wonderful Life. And yeah. then, like, halfway through the movie, I discover a lot of the people around me are actually rooting for Mr. Potter. And, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, that really freaks me out and i don't know how mm -hmm. our sort of value systems have reached entirely different conclusions so it's been it's been interesting uh the past you know handful of years to kind of come to terms with that to to sort of like find a connection and i know like you know some people as a result of that would say well forget it like you know, I'm not a Christian anymore, but like, I'm not going to do that. And I'm also no. not going to discount the faith of the people around me because I know that I know that a lot of people that I disagree with politically are people who believe as strongly as I do in the things about Jesus that make me a Christian. So we, we share mm. certain like deep, deeply held uh, religious convictions but I, I think that the way that the world is now or the, the way that our country is now is that we are being told more and more that people that we disagree with politically are actually enemies and people that we, sh mm. that we cannot have any common ground with because yeah. they're on the other side of a fight. And 
that's the idea that I've been kind of trying to reject over the past few years. Cause I, you know, I find myself being the political outlier in, you know, churches that I'm involved in, but yeah. like, okay, we have to, we have to work through that because we do have common ground on some very important things. Yeah. And you show I, up to the same I place every least, Sunday. Yeah. I, at least in theory, I believe that people who vote differently should be able to worship together. Certainly. And so I've been trying to put that into practice. But Josh, we've talked through a lot of your, um, a lot of your history, a lot of your different projects. Um, if you look back, is there, are there any songs that you wish you had not written? Oh, no, I don't think so. I can't think um, of anything that I expect you to say. I was just curious. <laughs> I wasn't setting you up for anything there. <laughs> no, on the contrary, I wish I had written more songs. Ah. Mm. Um, I wish there were, you know, we took seven years off. And there could be like three more Smoking Pokes albums in there than there are. Do you ever go back to old demos and uh, recycle anything? I, I know I've heard some songs through uh, Eli or Mike over time, like from way back, that were really great little songs that nobody's ever heard. Um, you know, yeah, Eli, will, he keeps all these things and sometimes he sends them to me. He just sent me one recently that is a song that we were demoing for the stay down album that didn't make it on i'm not sure why we didn't include it on there because uh, we like the song we think that it's pretty good so there's, there's a pretty good chance that it'll be on the next record cool it's called anything? never it's called never in a million years so if you if you see that on our, you know, album that's going to come out in 2024. There's a song called Never in a Million Years, and it, it's left over from, like, 2008. Awesome. Is there anything else you could say about the new album, or is it too early to get into? Um, it's, it's really too early. Like, we haven't recorded anything. I've just been demoing stuff with Mike. Uh, I go down. These days, because Eli and Matt both have uh, young kids, and so it's it's hard for us to get together, all four of us. So the way that we've been doing it is uh, I'll get together with Mike and I'll demo like, you know, the, the rough outline of the song that I have. And then we send that to Matt and Eli and they're going to listen to it and sort of like work on their individual parts so that when we all get together, we'll uh, we'll all get get in on it and it, it will evolve into something else. But. So when you started getting together with Mike to do new demos and do this sort of thing again, how did that feel? Because that's got to be quite a throwback because you and Mike did this stuff way back, the two of you guys kind of, didn't you? I remember hearing some demos that you and Mike worked on together. We did, back. back, especially during the period, there was a period in the 90s when I lived uh, at Mike's parents' house with him. And so, and he had like... Uh, you know, a four track set up in the basement and we would go down and just demo things. And so some of the stuff for Born to Quit was demoed down there with he and I. The difference is that back then we were demoing like 
at two in the morning smoking cigarettes and drinking Mountain Dew. <laughs> and now uh, there's no Mountain Dew involved. Diet Coke for Mike. Right? Diet, Diet Coke for Mike. Um, I don't smoke anymore, and we're demoing at about 6 p.m. And uh, <laughs> respectable, you know, that's it. Um, what would you say are like the, the differences in um, how songs develop if you're uh, doing it sort of more isolated with uh, every individual kind of contributing things uh, in a more piecemeal fashion as opposed to doing it all in a room together? Uh, I think that I think that it kind of ends up it ends up in the same place. Yeah. Um, it's just that we weren't we weren't all in the room for the, the parts of it where like I am where I'm like making kind of structural decisions about you know like where the where the bridge should be or like what yeah. the transition should be from the verse into the chorus because right. I usually come up with all that stuff um, it's just that now like I'm coming up with it separately instead of coming up with it in the same room as those other guys <laughs> you know yeah Sounds maybe more efficient. It's more efficient this way, yeah. Yeah, but the dynamic hasn't hasn't evolved or changed in any way. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, it's basically the same thing. Um, That's cool. We don't, yeah, we just don't have as much disposable time to get together right. and do it. So it helps that when we when we do get together, we already have the blueprint of what this song is supposed to look like but um For sure i feel like everybody over the years everybody has become more nuanced in their approach to the instrument that they play so mm. the thing that people are bringing to the table is more like more of a thumbprint um like, like on the, you know, when we did Into the Agony, there was some stuff that, you know, I, I'm writing like the basic kind of words, melody, basic chord structure of the song. But then Eli brought some stuff to the table that was some really tasty atmospheric guitar stuff that was cool. definitely took the songs to another level and was definitely like a progression from where he was previously at, which I feel like looking back, you can see that happening, I guess on all of our parts, but. Um, perhaps the, perhaps the contrast is more stark because you're listening to things in uh, like, it's not happening in real time in the same way. So you're able to yeah. see the changes happen a little more. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, so I'll be living like with the idea of a song for a while. And then you know, when Eli gets his hands on it and sort of puts puts a guitar part on it that makes it feel different, I'm like, oh, yeah. I didn't realize that that was missing from the song, but mm -hmm. it was. Now I could never 
tolerate the song without it. Right. That's awesome. Um, so I guess we're really quick. The Josh, Josh trio, Josh Cater trio that these guys, um, that's been another more recent thing for you. Um, although going on like three years now, almost, uh, uh, that's right. We started in 2020. Yeah. During the magical lockdown. year. That was a, that was a really fun project. Like watching you guys live stream at a couple different venues with the, uh, it was, it was cool because it was, you were recording it for an album, like in that space. So it was just cool though. Like watching it, it was like watching an album come together. Only way mm. more interesting than watching an actual album come together. I've seen <laughs> right. <that> <laughs> right. A real a way less mountain Dew. album is super boring to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I remember telling people that when I would go, uh, when you would record uh, Duval, and I was like, you know, we had a lot of fun, but it's a long day <laughs> like, you know, of the same different guitar parts and stuff for the same song over and over again. I was right. Yeah, <laughs> there's been many times, well, particularly the last album that uh, the band I'm currently in uh, was recording. You know, I had a couple couple people ask me, like, what's it like? Uh, what's it like writing music? And I'm like, honestly, it's like two people yelling. Uh, we do it four times or we do it five times for like 10 minutes until we finally figure it out. And then like, <laughs> like. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like arguing about how many times we we line things up or do we do the bridge before this or after this? And, you know, we try it all out. And then, yeah, it's it's messy. You know, it's like throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks a fair amount. But, so yeah, did, I, no one wants to see how the sausage is made. Where did this tree <laughs> come from? Like, how did that kind of happen? Where did what? The, the, you three, like, how did you three end up pulling together during COVID when nobody could get together? Um, well, yeah, so, so everything closes down during, you know, the summer of 2020 and, uh, all gigs are canceled and everybody is just climbing the walls and I'm losing my mind just like everybody else is like getting really restless. And then I noticed that this place in Chicago called the hideout started having these virtual shows where a band would go in and play to an empty club and they would just live stream it. And I saw that uh, and I was like, all right, that's cool. And I want to do one of those. But I instantly um, just felt like it, that wasn't going to be a Pope's thing. Uh, it was going to be an opportunity to do something else. Like it just felt to me like something some other thing that was happening while the popes were in lockdown. Um, so I was like, all right, I'm going to get together with a couple other musicians and get like a solo, just put together a, uh, a COVID specific solo project. Um, and I thought of, you know, my friend, John Perrin, who I, I had known for years, but we'd never played together in a band. Uh, I had just seen like he was in a band called the love shots that opened for the popes a couple of times. And then I had seen him play with the Western Elstons and I knew that he played with NRBQ. So like, I just super respected him as a musician and I wanted to play with him. And I was like, well, if he's willing to get together, this could be my opportunity. Same thing with John San Juan. I, I was familiar with hush drops and I knew some of his solo stuff. And I knew he was a very gifted uh, musician, but I'd never played with him. 
So I called those two guys up and just asked if they wanted to get together. And if either of them had a practice space that was big enough to, uh, to accommodate social distancing while we practiced. And so there was a lot of like getting together, you know, with, with masks on and like trying to stay away from each other and stay in different corners of the room while we practiced. And those guys kept their masks on, but I would take mine off to sing and put it back on and, you know, that sort of thing. But at least it was, we were, we're doing something. I've found like, you know, even, even during the times when the, the popes have been inactive for various reasons, I always have to be doing something. I think that's why I like, I ended up putting Duval together and like, there was another point where the, the popes kind of, uh, took, we're taking a little bit of a break and I, uh, I started up a blues band because yeah. I, I just don't like to not be creating new music. So that's what this was. It was just me being restless. Yeah. And those, those guys, the two Johns had not been in a band together before, but when they started playing together almost immediately, they just locked in so perfectly with each other that it felt to me like they, they had been playing together for years, you know, but they, they are both, they're separately so talented and so intuitive that uh, they just quickly became this super tight, powerful rhythm section that is a joy to play with. And it's, it's different. It's different than the Pope's. Their style is very different. Um, a lot of the, the, my trio uh, stuff ends up being more, I don't know. It's not, I don't know how you'd describe it. It's not quite like the Pope's. The playing is a little more like, uh, improvisational and also uh, the way that those guys play is almost like they're almost like jazz musicians the way that they're, they're always looking to fill in the spaces with like little flourishes and interesting things yeah it was actually the you guys you were the first band that I actually went and saw as COVID ended like well ended <laughs> um yeah, that was that was a great time. Um, so, <laughs> I wanted to um, I wanted to mention you also have a thing going on now with Downright. Yes, like that I probably should ask you ahead of time, but now it's too late. <laughs> oh well, that's okay. We can just quickly say that if anyone is interested in commissioning a uh, custom custom written song from me you can do that through downright oh that's brilliant yeah yeah i've done a bunch of them so far and they're always really fun to do like people will say hey i want to order a song for my uh for my wife it's coming up on our 10th anniversary and i want to give her a we're both pope's fans and i want to give her a special gift so here's her name and here's some details about our sort of you know relationship like where we met and here's you know her favorite 
color or whatever and i just incorporate all that stuff into the song and it's great it's really fun it's fun so you're already um, doing the improv rock thing that's cool <laughs> sort of yeah sort of uh, i wanted to mention again um get fired turns 30 next, next year. year yep we're doing um, a reissue of it so will there be any uh new songs added or no. We couldn't find any like demos or anything. It's just the album remastered. It's got, you know, some different liner notes. I wrote some new stuff for the liner notes of it. Cool. I wrote a little paragraph for each song. Nice. So there's kind of a, I have something to say about every track on the record, but there's no new tracks on it. Cool. Um, I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about Let Them Die. <laughs> yeah. There was always this uh, thing going back and forth on the internet, whether that was cows or cheerleaders. So I'll be interested to see what your take on it is. Cows or cheerleaders. <laughs> All right. I do have a, there is a story about that, but I'll. it's in there. Okay. <laughs> I'll let you read it when it comes out. It's like the old commercials, read the book. Right. Exactly. Piqued our interest. All right. Yeah. That's a fun piece. Oh. You guys got anything else? No, I think that's. I'm not going to lie. I've got a ton, but we're approaching 90 minutes. So I think we'll have to do this again another time. Yeah. It's been great talking to you guys. Thanks for having me on. This been yeah. great thanks. Talk. Thanks for coming, man. Fantastic. Thank you. Cool. Cool. And uh, with that, I'm going to wrap the show. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Ben and John, for being here. And Josh, it's fantastic. Thanks. Um...